This is Terrible Parables, a podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, in which a Bible scholar, a pastor, and an anxious Christian look for some good news and passages of Scripture that are difficult, frightening, or particularly, well, terrible. I'm your host, Callie Yee, and in a little bit, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Todd Brewer and Brian Gerald. Join us as we find that sometimes the spooky things that go bump in the night are just figments of our imaginations. Jesus said, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a shout, Look, here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, No. There will not be enough for you and for us. You had better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Truly, I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Ready? Are you ready, Kelly? Yeah. Are you ready? I, I I need you guys to tell me why this parable is so terrible. Are you ready, Todd? Are you ready? I mean, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> <laughs> we we have had um, whenever we've told people that we are doing this podcast, we've had several people tell us in response immediate first thought. First thought. First thought. You need to do all three of the parables that show up in Matthew 25. Matthew overall like hands down the most requested section that we do. This this section seems to really have it out in terms of terrible parables of Jesus. The three parables in in this particular chapter are are, are three of them. Yeah. yeah. And because we're good disc jockeys, we are doing one of them. <laughs> we don't have the time to do all three, you know, but one and we'll see where it goes. Yeah, and it's not that we don't want to do the other two. It's just there are a lot of parables we want to talk about, and then all three of these have some similar themes to them. Yeah. So maybe you can take away something from our conversation today about this particular parable that will help you understand some of the others. Yeah, we're trying to avoid repeating ourselves. So, yes. Mm-hmm. So with this parable, I think the first interesting thing that in, in terms of that makes it so 
terrible, uh, is that we actually don't really know much about uh, first century Jewish wedding customs. Um, This kind of potentially key interpretive context we don't really know. I mean, we know a little bit about farming because people keep farming. We know a little bit about fishing. People do fish. So all, a lot of the other parables, we sort of have a general idea about what actually happened. But like wedding rituals, we have conflicting evidence and the parable itself doesn't seem to conform to some of our sort of evidence of, of what's going on. Like, are they going into the service? Are they going into a celebration afterwards? Mm-hmm. Right, Why is right. the bridegroom coming now? What, what made him late? Is he building a house? Is he negotiating a dowry for, I don't, I've like heard all, all of, these, of those questions. Yeah. Yeah. Being yeah. Asked. yeah. All of these questions, we actually don't really know the answer to. So what ends up happening in the absence of this kind of specificity that people want because it's a parable and they need to kind of make extrapolations along those lines, <laughs> what they're left with is keep watch. Mm. Uh, they, they're left with this kind of don't fall asleep, be ready. Be prepared. Be prepared. Be prepared yes. Jesus is coming. And isn't be prepared a scar song in the Lion is. King? Be prepared. Like, cause he's, yeah, he's about to overthrow Mufasa. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's not important, but I, I mean, that's we what got, comes to Jeremy mind, Irons right? is very good in that film. And also we got to hear Brian sing a little bit. So that was exciting. So is Jonathan Taylor Thomas, by the way. All but, right. But, Whoopi Goldberg. But it's so I funny. I can play this game too. <laughs> right, right, right. But it's so funny you should say that about like not knowing the weddings, right? Because even in our own time, you go back 10, 15 years, weddings have changed even in our own time. Some of the customs and, and, and you know, you talk to someone who's maybe a little older and, and they'll tell you about weddings that happened all that, you know, 50 years ago and they'll say it's not the same. So let's not, let's not necessarily think that uh, the answer, the way to dig through this parable is to f- figure out the ancient Near East custom and wedding that is happening here. Maybe we should just sort of trust that we have enough information for Matthew to understand the parable apart from some of the things that we don't maybe know exactly. Yeah, Matthew was a good enough writer that his text uh, could be understood uh, by people who weren't immediately well acquainted with the very specificity of uh, is Israel-Palestine cultural customs. Yeah. Um, and in some senses, that that's actually reflective of the of why we still have this text. Mm-hmm. If this text was uh, entirely dependent upon the cultural circumstances in which it was written, it would not have become a classic. It would not have been copied, handed down, continued to be read and reread in the church to become part of the New Testament. But at the same time, you know, maybe it's because we don't have some of that information that there is this sort of again. I've, I've used this in some of the talking about the other parables we've talked about. Uh, in talking about some of these parables of Jesus, there's what I'm calling a, a sort of moralism vacuum, mm. where uh. there there tends to be this sort of lack of specific ethical moral application that comes from it. And the result is that when people preach it, they insert their favorite moralisms of the day mm. into that space to tell you how to be prepared. Oh, right. Right. So in some churches, being prepared means helping the poor, doing works of charity, uh, not being a racist all fine things. And others, it's more sort of, um, you know, uh, 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 family values as we know them today, or read your Bible more, or do daily devotions. Again, all fine things. Mm. But 
what we have here seems to be some sort of very ambiguous question of what does it mean to have oil? And people do this thing where they get very anxious. Do I have the oil? Do you have the oil? Do I have the oil? What is the oil? And, and there's this sort of when there is this sort of moralistic vacuum and, and it's the moral is to be ready or be prepared or do you have the oil? I think the only response you can have to that that makes any sense is clinical anxiety, <laughs> you know, because you're sitting there thinking, am I ready? Am I ready? Mm. Do I have the oil? What is the oil? And then you start trying to sort of play whack-a-mole with every single problem that could come forward. And then you're left exhausted, you're left tired, you're left burnt out. And um, this is a parable that if you don't treat it right, then people are going to walk away from it feeling completely and totally overwhelmed by anxiety. Yeah, because people who are anxious tend to be really overcome by the future and the uncertainty of the future. Uh, specifically this question of, are you ready? Right. Mm. So I, I have a friend who's a highly anxious person. We'll just put it that way. And they're the kind of person where if you meet them at a, if you kind of see them at a party, they'll tell you about all of the really bad things that are happening yeah. Mm. Yeah. in that very moment. Um, you know, are you aware that inflation is really bad? Or <laughs> Todd, did you read this, this Atlantic article uh, spelling out the latest whatever variant of coronavirus or whatever, like any worst case possible scenario they can think of, they are consumed by it because they're an anxious person. Have, have you seen used car prices today? Do you need to buy a car? I hope not, Todd. No, I need to sell a car though. <laughs> oh, no, there you go. Good Kidding. news, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it, it reminds me of, of Y2K. Did any of you guys have overactive family during Y2K who stockpiled things? Uh, New Year's Eve, before we could watch the ball drop, we had to go around the house and fill every single tub full of bath water. And we had so much applesauce in our, our cellar that we ate applesauce for what seemed like an entire year afterward because there was this anxiety about everything ending. And some of that was external from the news, but some of it was already in our hearts. And I think, you know, people are approaching this parable like it's Y2K. How do I get ready for it? Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, if that's the only thing we have to offer from this parable, we're just going to let pe lead people into, into a tizzy. I mean, I, so I moved at the end of August, um, I moved to Charlottesville. And so the only question that people could ask me for a few months before I moved is, are you ready to Ooh. move? Are you ready to be on your own and be an adult? And my internal answer was like, ah, no, I'm not. But um, my, the answer I gave them was, I think so. I think it will be okay. Um, because that is the answer that they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear that I was prepared when really, I mean, I'm in like three months into it. And all of the preparing I did is like all for naught because life is just, it's that way you know, and it's kind of comical. And so I realized that no matter how much I prepare for adult life or how much I stress over it, I'm never going to be ready enough. And that's a scary feeling. Yeah. Are you ready for the zombie apocalypse? <laughs> right, right, right. The question produces anxiety, even if you're well aware that zombies are an actual like fictional no, thing. Yes. I'm not ready for the zombie apocalypse. I just, I don't have any stake in that happening, but, but at the same time, just being like, 
I'm not ready for the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. e- you know it's easier just to dismiss it, and not worry about it. And, and I think people do that with the Christian faith. Like, yeah. are you ready for Jesus to come back? It's like, yeah. well, and it makes Jesus into this kind of guy who's going to like barge in on you whenever you're doing the worst possible thing, right? Mm-hmm. Who's like, he could come back now, or he could come back now, right, 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 right. Like, yeah. make sure whatever you're doing, you you're ready for whenever mm-hmm. he right, arrives. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, Brian, I think you said this joke last night. Uh, you said for like when when Jesus finally comes, like look busy, like yeah. telling all of your friends, telling yourself, look busy, look busy. He's here. He's here. He's here. Right. Yeah. Right. It's like some dignitary is about to walk into uh, walk into the room and uh, or like the boss or the CEO. And then your your immediate boss comes in. It's like, everybody, the CEO's here. Look like you're busy. And everyone's sitting there furiously typing, furiously typing. And the CEO comes in and looks around. So very good. And then, then leaves the room. It's like, you know, it's all fake. It, it doesn't really matter. We're not getting ready or anything. But there's this frantic fear of being judged mm. by yeah. a criteria that we don't know. And mm. if we don't talk about this when we talk about this parable, then again, we're just going to create uh, spirals of doubt and unknowing. So, why is this parable not actually as terrible and anxiety producing as it feels? So I, I think the first thing to note is that if you read interpreters, they don't really often know what to make of the fact that all of the bridesmaids sleep. Right, mm. right. Yeah. Particularly because the end says, you know, keep awake for you know, know not when the hour mm. is. So, but what what's really going on in, in um, sleep across the New Testament is actually a metaphor for death. Really? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. It, it's it's the way of talking about the cessation of life that anticipates a future. Oh. Um, they the have fallen, some have fallen asleep. Some have fallen asleep. Oh, anticipating right. a future. I th- right? I like that. In the same way someone will, who falls asleep will wake up. Yeah. Right. Um, death as, as falling asleep is a common euphemism throughout the New Testament, and it is here. In other mm. words, when these bridesmaids fall asleep, this is an instance of their death. So uh, it's not a question of preparedness, so to speak. Right, right. It isn't. No, not in the same way that, that would, people would talk about it. Right? Yeah. Like, it's, it has to do more with what's happened prior to their death, um, number one, but and reflective of specifically uh, wisdom and foolishness. And this is another yeah, instance that's when... It. that's it. Like, wisdom and foolishness... People read into it all kinds of kind of moral possibilities. Hmm. It's a, mm-hmm. it, the language itself is quite broad. Wisdom and foolishness can be any number of things, but what actually is going on? If you look at wisdom and foolishness language within Matthew's gospel, it's it, it's it appears several times actually, and this parable actually mirrors Jesus's own t- teachings in, in Matthew seven about the wise and foolish builders. Right. Right. So that the wise builders build on the rock, the foolish builders build on the sand. So, and this is a, a mini parable that has everything to do with uh, whether one is or is not responding to the life and ministry of Jesus. 
right? So it, it's not a question of how moral are you? How big is this house that you're building? Mm-hmm. It has to do with the response, whether there is a response or whether you hear Jesus's words and his ministry and think, well, that's a neat story. And, and, and it has no kind of generative effect um, or it has has no uh, produces produces fruit, right? It just, <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah, uh, it, apathy versus captivation. Hmm. Yeah, and, and so what you get then is what you get is this: people are working themselves up into a tizzy about, you know, they don't have any oil, right? So then, if 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 Todd is right, and I think he is, that that this is really a parable about wisdom and foolishness. Um, wisdom becomes a stand-in for. Uh, some sort of lively faith and actual belief in in what God has promised. Um, and so there's a sense in which when you try to ascribe some sort of moral prescription to the problem of this parable, um, what you're doing is narrowing the focus of what God's grace can actually do, mm. right? Uh, and in some sense, there is a direction, right? We've got the fruit of the Spirit, for example, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, and the like, uh, as Paul outlines in Galatians. You're not going to name them all? Love, joy, peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I didn't realize there was a song coming. There, there is a song, and I've just triggered every ex-evangelical listening to this podcast wow. right But now. we also <laughs> just got two instances of Brian singing. Uh, this is the episode True. where Brian sings. Yeah. In episode You're seven, welcome. Brian sings the entire thing. <laughs> But, uh, but there's a sense where um, the more we prescribe certain ways of behaving, the more we're limiting what God does. And so sometimes I, I do this thought exercise with people to help them understand the wideness of God's mercy, as it were. Uh, imagine two different people. And the first is a, is a millionaire uh, who uh, donates $100,000 to a local homeless shelter. It's a good okay? tithe. And it's a good, it's a good tithe, right? <laughs> and, and they come to that conclusion, they make the donation out of prayer, and they're listening for God, and they're saying, God, I want to give. And, and they come to this conclusion out of a mix of wisdom and prayer and, and talking with other people and make a godly, wise decision to donate to the, to, the, to the food bank, okay, or the homeless shelter. Wise. Right. So then the, the next circumstance is a um, young person who's been beaten by life, and they're laying at home on their bed under the comforters, and their alarm has gone off, and they hit snooze four times, and they're due at work in 10 minutes uh, down the street, but they just can't will themselves out of bed. And they're sitting there in a complete and total clinically depressed state, that's destroying their life and, and, and all the relationships that are meaningful for a relationship. But while they're sitting there, they remember something the preacher said about the love of God on church on Sunday. And they say to themselves in their head, okay, I can get out of bed now because God loves me. Hmm. And they literally roll out of bed, put on some dirty clothes and make it out the door and they get to, to work maybe like two minutes late, but the boss doesn't notice, but they make it. Now, which one of those... Um, is a greater act of the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure we can tell. I don't think there's a way of sort of measuring and putting th- what this oil looks like into some meaningful, measurable way. It's also not something that really needs to be measured. It's not supposed exactly, to be measured. Exactly. Even though it's like we don't have enough to give to you and to us is one mm. of the, the pieces of this parable. The, the question is really do you have it or, or do you not? And I think from from a standpoint of 
trying to say what the oil is, the more prescriptive you get. It looks like A, B, C, X, Y, Z. The more, um, the, the more uh, we deviate from, I think, what Jesus' original intent was. And the more we exclude people. And the more we exclude people who very well could have a lively faith. Mm. And we're just sort of squashing a smoldering wick, someone who's, whose faith may not be very big, but it's still faith. Mm. You know, they have it and it's important not to, to squash it. And prescribing these things is going to squash it. Mm. So what, what would we say then to someone who... Uh, is anxious about whether they have oil. Yeah. Like what, what, what is that? What's, what's the word here to that? Uh, it's almost counterintuitive in fact, Todd, because I think the anxiety about whether you have the oil means you care enough about having the oil that you probably have the oil. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? like, like the fact that you actually read this text and you're wondering about the judgment of God and whether you have enough faith it means you're taking the parable seriously yes. enough that you actually are trying to understand Jesus' teachings in your own life. And therefore, I think it's probably evidence you've got oil. Like, like yeah. they're having a it's panic there. attack over this. Right? Yeah. The, the trick for us as, as preachers is to give you some sort of blessing and say, this is not a text meant to produce that kind of anxiety. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a text that's meant to talk about what the final judgment of God looks like. And yeah. there are plenty of people, I think, and maybe I'm stepping too close to, to judgment here, but this text does say there are people who aren't going to be there when the bridal procession comes. But think about it, right? If you're getting ready for, uh, if you're an anxious person and you're in the bridal, like you're the person who's so anxious about this bridal procession, you've brought so much oil and you've overprepped for it. You know what I mean? Like your anxiety is is part of the very thing that makes you prepared for when the 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 groom comes. So in this weird way, it's counterintuitive. I actually don't think this passage is meant to produce anxiety. Hmm. Um, right, right. I, think, I should clarify that. Right. I think this passage is meant to point you back to the uh, to the life and ministry of Jesus. It's meant mm-hmm. to point you back towards the source in some way, shape, or form. Right, right. Um, is it meant to point you back to the fact that there is a bridegroom, as in there is Jesus, and he is coming? And, and that's the point of it? And there will Ooh. be a wedding. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and yeah, and I think that's absolutely right. There is someone, who, a beloved, who is coming and who you know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who's the reason why you're out there in the first place. So the article I have from you actually comes from Paul Zoll's book, Grace and Practice. I think many of our listeners will know this book, but if you don't, here's a quote from it. Jesus' life was a labor of grace. This is boundlessly evident in the four Gospels. It is also the reason why he was crucified and why his approach to religion was abhorred. Unlike the law, Christ's approach always worked. The people whom he treated under the sign of grace broke down. Each of them had his or her nervous breakdown. Being loved one way, without reference to the response, they always said yes. This yes is the breakdown that arrives with undeceived diagnosis in the presence of love. 
Zacchaeus broke down. Mary Magdalene broke down. The woman who was freed from her ailment broke down. St. Peter broke down. Every one of the original disciples broke down. All fall down. Grace has a domino effect. It is at the bottom of the house of cards that is human identity. It is the ground floor of our striving after love. When grace comes in, when it rewrites the script, when its light shines in the basement of the house that is ourselves, unbuilt to God, grace demolishes and creates. It does what it promises. Unlike the law, which produces the opposite of what it demands, grace succeeds. It produces the fruit, to use the New Testament metaphor, of a law-congruent life. Law, he said that, law-congruent life. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's in many ways what this parable is really about. It's helpful to me because it sort of takes the world of the parable and provides a backstory mm. in a helpful way for us because it binds together and it demonstrates that, you know, grace produces something. It mm. has an effect. And in some senses, that effect is the thing which is the difference between these two sets of bridesmaids, mm. those by whom it is received and those by whom it is discarded or, or rejected or ignored or, or however you want to sort of yeah. characterize that. Yeah. So for a passage that can produce anxiety, in some senses, what, what, this, what it's really about is that grace works. And so the, the parable is about the efficaciousness of grace. And so rather than producing anxiety, it's meant to produce assurance. Hmm. You know, I once was blind, but now I see. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Uh, all of the kind of we who stand on the other side of grace and recognize its significance and its importance in our life, recognize uh, Jesus as the kind of hinge upon which all of human history turns. It, that's the oil. Yeah. Right? Yep, yep, yep. That's not a law. It's not a measure of judgment according to works in the same way, but it is a, it is a kind of measure of response. It says that we received the gift of grace that Jesus gave to us. Yeah. I'm going to go on a limb here, but uh, I think I can I can prove what I'm about to say. A little think? bit of a little bit of a long shot. Okay. Have you actually seen the movie with Kristen Wiig, Bridesmaids, Maya Rudolph? Yes. It's so good. I, when, when it's Paul, so funny. No. I don't like, think so, no. It's so funny. It, oh, it's it so is funny, a phenomenal Todd. film. Uh, I say film like it's highbrow. It's not highbrow. It's <laughs> phenomenal. It's a phenomenal comedy. Um, and, uh, and Paul keeps talking about people who have breakdowns. Mm. And the whole point of this Bridesmaid movie is that so many – there's this bride-to-be and then the wedding party, but then all the wedding party, they all have their fits and their foibles that they bring. And it points – there's this sort of, is this going to derail the wedding? And so you've got the one um, the Kristen Wiig character whose sort of life is a total hot mess. And <laughs> things get so bad she's actually kicked out of the wedding party. She is asked to not be a bridesmaid anymore. But the day of the wedding, um, the, all sorts of things come apart. And Kristen Wiig's character is not the only one whose life falls apart. The bride falls apart. Another bridesmaid's life is falling apart. And so they all fall down, to quote Paul's all. And if the thing that get, the thing that gets them to the wedding, the thing that gets the bride down the aisle is ultimately love. Um, that they reconcile, they they repent. I think that's another kind of thing we can say in terms of it's not necessarily a work, but there is sort of a giving up on your own efforts to make your life whole and good. It's the kindness which leads us to repentance. To right, and it's the kindness that leads us to repentance. Mm. And so uh, there is this overarching um, there is this overarching theme I think of of um, 
whatever it is that oil is, it's not our good works. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, Paul says so in, in, in uh, first uh, Corinthians 12, when he talks about um, power and weakness, he says, my uh, God's word to Paul, this is a word straight from God to Paul is my grace is sufficient for you. I love that verse. That's really and I wonder if we have the faith to believe that that's true in this parable too. Mm. Yeah. So if we want to talk about this in terms of like big picture, right? Um, how does this parable fit within Christianity? Mm. Um, I think it, you can say that grace, as far as uh, the New Testament and uh, Paul and the Gospels and Jesus are concerned, is given to those who are unworthy, mm. right? People who don't earn it, who aren't fitting recipients mm. of this grace. These are uh, the poor, the weak, the destitute, those who have no, no leg to stand on. Mm. And that gift of grace is received, and it engenders a response of thankfulness. It mm-hmm. engenders, it is, um, I did what I did before love came to town. Right? <laughs> Todd's singing too. Right? It turns the world upside down, um, and it has an effect. Hmm. Um, and I think what, what's so often is when we when we get into the game of trying to measure that effect hmm. um, as some kind of standard, as some kind of, uh, w- are you doing the right things? Are you being the right things? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That what ends up happening is you, you cut off the response to grace from the, the gift itself. Hmm. It becomes a self-generating righteousness, yeah. rather than a, a righteousness or a, a life which which depends upon a prior gift. Hmm. And so, in some senses, this parable embodies or, or demonstrates that there is a kind of reciprocity between the gift of grace and and, and God and Jesus and our own response to that, but it's only asymmetrically so because it always depends yeah. upon the prior gift of God. Um, so this isn't meant to be a kind of self-referential activity. What can I do? How can I be ready? All of those kinds of things. But it me- it's meant to be engendered from a prior love, a prior uh, grace, a prior forgiveness, which changes things. And I think I think that is so powerful that we're given this gift of grace, even though we don't deserve it. Even when God knows what we're going to do tomorrow or the sins that we're going to commit or he knows how we're going to react to it, he still gives us it. And I think that's really beautiful. And um, for me, I think about that um, because, I mean, God's love, God's love is like a father. It's like a parent. And so that makes me think about my mom. And so when as a teen, I was a terrible teenager. I just want to put that out there. I have a really hard time believing that. No, I was You're like, a very good person now. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Um, I was really, really a terrible teenager. And so my mom had to deal with that, um, for a long time. But throughout all of that, what I, remember is not the moments when she was frustrated with me or not the moments when I was frustrated with her. What I remember is the fact that she continued to love me during all the times that I was terrible, all the times that I didn't deserve her to 
forgive me for the words that I said to her or show love. She just continued to show it to me because she's my mom and she's the embodiment of grace for me in my life. So, so to bring it full circle, right? Would you say that your preparedness for adulthood could be in some senses reflected in, in the love that your mom uh, had for you to, to actually bring you to that point? The fact that I am okay as a human being is only because I have been loved by my mother unconditionally. That is the only reason that I am okay right now. I think looking back at those sources of grace in our lives is in some sense looking at the reflection of God that we couldn't see Mm. at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we find that source of grace, whether it's our mothers, our grandparents, maybe um, for some people it's a a teacher who took them aside and invested them at school. And for some people uh, it's uh, someone down the street who just provided a safe place. I think that ability to reflect on the source of grace that we've all received um, I think any one of us here would gladly, you know, uh, stop a bullet for someone in that situation. And so when we talk about grace engendering what the law provides, what the law requires, that's what we're getting at, is that love in that, as Todd, Todd you said it right, that disproportional love, um, that asymmetrical love. Once we get that... Um, you know, let's let's let that thing cook. Let's let it go, and let's not try to control it. Um, but let's let the love grow into something beautiful, because that's that's I think the the vision of New Testament ethics. Anyway, yeah. you've been loved so overwhelmingly uh, that you automatically, without thought, without consternation, you just love other people in the same way. Yeah, I think I think a good summary of of this is from Martin Luther in the Heidelberg Disputation says, <laughs> "The love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. Mm. That, that it, it it comes prior, and it it's creative, it's dynamic, it's powerful, and in that way, it's it's the most important thing ever." And so I think as we kind of wrap up talking about this parable here, um, there's a real gift because there is a wedding and we've been invited to it. <laughs> and um, and I, I, I think the last thing that... We've Jesus, got our save the date cards. We, we have our save the date cards. Maybe there's not a date on the save the date cards, uh, but they're, they're, it's happening. <laughs> there's no date. <laughs> <laughs> and we're looking forward to it. And we're looking yes. forward to it. Yes. Right, right. Um, right. It's, it's, it's an engagement announcement. The wedding is coming soon. Uh, and and uh, I think if we walk away from this parable with a sense of sort of dramatic anxiety about how ready we are, it, it takes away from the fun and the excitement of the fact that the wedding is coming. And so I hope nobody comes away from this parable feeling uh, anxious, overwhelmed. Their heart is in their throat. I hope nobody comes away from this parable feeling um, as if there's some sort of reprobate left out, not going to come or get the invitation. Uh, I think the invitation is is there for all, and the wedding is coming. And uh, guys, it's going to be a party that we will never forget. God's a great DJ. 
<laughs> We're all going to dance. Thank you for listening to Terrible Parables. You can find us on the web at ember.com. Audio production for Terrible Parables is provided by TJ Hester. Please leave us a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you've had a not-so-terrible time. <laughs> <laughs>